this is Colin Hay, and you're listening to Everything Fab Four on Salon.com. Welcome to Everything Fab Four, a new podcast focused on fun and intelligent stories about the Beatles. I'm your host, Ken Womack, music culture columnist for Salon.com and a Beatles scholar and historian. No other band or popular phenomenon, for that matter, has enjoyed the global impact of the Beatles. They are part of our human fabric. They created an enduring music that brings people together, and just about everyone has their own Beatles story to tell, some that are surprisingly deep and unexpected. With each episode, we'll be featuring a new guest to share their Fab Four journey, along with amazing theme music from Black Rabbit. Remember, it's a Beatles world, and everybody has a story. I was going down to visit George at his house in Escher one afternoon, and we smoked some hash. And it was like, hey, you want to hear the new album? Sure, absolutely. And that's where I first heard Sgt. Pepper, sitting with him in his this room is very Indian decor, of course. A lot of big cushions and stuff, and big, big old sound system, and on goes Sergeant Pepper, and you know, that was that was a game changer for everybody. Today's guest is Dave Mason, an English singer-songwriter and guitarist who first found fame with the rock band Traffic. Over the course of his legendary career. Mason has played and recorded with many notable pop and rock musicians, a hit parade that includes Paul McCartney, George Harrison, the Rolling Stones, Jimi Hendrix, Eric Clapton, Michael Jackson, David Crosby, Graham Nash, Steve Winwood, Fleetwood Mac, and Delaney and Bonnie. Mason was a friend of guitarist Jimi Hendrix, whose rock career was launched in England in 1966. Hendrix first heard the song All Along the Watchtower from Bob Dylan's album John Wesley Harding with Mason. Hendrix recorded his own version at London's Olympic Studios with Mason playing 12-string acoustic guitar. The song was released on the album Electric Ladyland in September 1968. Mason also sings backing vocals on Hendrix's Crosstown Traffic. In 1969, Mason toured with Delaney and Bonnie and Friends along with Eric Clapton and George Harrison. Mason appears on Harrison's 1970 classic solo set, All Things Must Pass. In 1970, Mason was slated to be the second guitarist for Derek and the Dominoes. He played on their early studio sessions, including the Phil Spector-produced Tell the Truth. One of Mason's best-known songs is Feelin' Alright, recorded by Traffic in 1968 and later by many other performers, including Joe Cocker whose version of the song was a hit in 1969. For Traffic, Mason also wrote Hole in My Shoe, a psychedelic pop song that became a hit in its own right. In 1975, he played guitar on Paul McCartney and Wings' Listen to What the Man Said, the chart-topping song from Venus and Mars. We Just Disagree, Mason's 1977 solo hit, has become a staple of American classic hits and adult contemporary radio playlists. In 2004, 
Mason was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a founding member of Traffic. Welcome, Dave Mason. So I wonder if uh, maybe we could begin by you telling me when you first heard these guys, what was your Beatles origin? Where did I first heard them? Um, When I was um, in my hometown in Worcester in England at the Odeon Theater where live shows would come. It was a movie theater. And they were opening for Roy Orbison. And that's where I first saw them. Couldn't hear much. And then halfway through that tour, they flipped it, and Roy Orbison opened for them. That's a pretty tough thing for an artist, right, when they do that, when when there is that uh, that moment where, uh, you know, the supporting act becomes the headliner. Mm-hmm. But I was just a fan in the audience. And then, um, you know, later did I know that I'd be – you know, at Abbey Road Studios or going to Paul's house or hanging out with George or any of that stuff. So what got you out there? Uh, Was it um, uh, you were already interested in the band, I take it? I already had local bands, you know. I was was playing. I was just... um, But uh, that's what I was going to do, I guess. Hell or high water, I was, that's what I was going to do. Did you grow up in a musical family? No. How did you get the spark then? Well, I guess. I mean, my whole, what I, as I've said many times in interviews, I was, my real desire was to go in the Royal Air Force. But I was, uh, but my math skills, um, uh, were not up to par. Um, numbers were not a, of interest to me, I guess. So, um, and I figured I was not going to be working because I'd gone through three jobs very briefly, um, my hometown. I figured I was not going to be working nine to five. So, you know, it was either a life of crime or join a rock band. <laughs> I, I feel like you made the right choice. <laughs> so, you know, I found another way to fly. Let's put it that way. Were you always, uh, was the guitar your first instrument? No, clarinet was. Ah. And, and violin, but I only took violin because lessons were at the girls' school. So, <laughs> so you had a prevailing strategy. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. What was your first guitar? A Mayfair. How did you acquire that? Cost forty-five dollars. Uh, my parents bought it. So they were supportive of this uh, this dream come hell or high water. My mother was. Oh. How about your dad? Well, you know, my dad was born in eighteen ninety four, so. You know, I grew up with some pretty old-fashioned values. And he was, I suppose, looking for you to, to have a trade or something along those lines? Of course. You know, long hair and pointed, pointed boots were not going to make it. So then 
when did you uh, when did you first hear the Beatles, or th- perhaps they weren't even your origin? My my whole thing was the Shadows. So when did you when did you first hear the Beatles? Then where I told well on record, of course. Yes. Please please me. Okay, so were you, would you call yourself an early adopter? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Was happening? You know, was that? It was that time. I mean, I'm you know we're t- fourteen, fifteen. What's that? That's nineteen sixty. It's not that far out of a you know two major world wars. Things were changing. But then when, when this was happening, right, this, this wasn't something that could become a job. No one really thought of these as professions. Is that correct? Uh, no, who knows? I mean, I was a kid. I was 18. I was, you know, had all the I had no responsibilities, no marriage, no kids, no mortgage, no nothing. Do what the hell I want, <laughs> you know. Um, but I had to make something happen. You know, I had to get out there and support myself. Um, just couldn't rely on my, uh, you know, I wasn't going to keep taking from my parents or rely on them. I mean, like I said, my dad was born in 1894. So, you know, when I was 20, he was into his seventies. Oof. So where, when did you start to realize that, uh, that this could be something where you could make a buck. What did that look like? Which the local bands did local shows, played at pubs, played at weddings, played at, you know, and then started to get gigs in Birmingham and other places. And you make a little bit of money. I mean, enough for, I mean, Jim and I, Capote and I, we had a house together in Malvern, eight miles out of Worcester. And we were, God, I must've been like 17. He's 19, he's two years older than me. So we were, you know, we were out and about doing stuff on our own early. Doing, you know, doing things um, way younger. I mean, you know, 11, 12, 13, I'd take off and go to air shows, you know. (laughs) So I was very much used to being on my own. When you look back on that, does it seem kind of ballsy that you, you know, I can't imagine my kids today, right, having a house at 17 or even being able to make it. It it uh, it sounds so different and yet exciting. I know. That's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> that, is, that is one of the problems of the world today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, too much fear, perhaps? You know, it, life's a crapshoot anyway. And, you know, we're here for a little while. And so, you know, you have to get out and live it. I mean, that's, you know, you have, I mean, the thing about it is, is, is whatever it is you're going to do. Um, and if you can do, especially what, you know, I stepped into doing, having no formal education in it whatsoever. Um, it's a lot of just, you, you have to have a passion. I mean, if you have a passion, then it ain't work. You know, it's work sometimes. I mean, going on the road is work, but, but otherwise, you know, the, it, if you have a passion for something, it just, it really isn't work. There isn't enough time. There isn't enough hours in the day, frankly, you know. 
One of our themes this year uh, is the idea, um, as you know, obviously, because we're all living it right now. Mm-hmm. Um, people are going to go back to work. People are going to start making their commutes. Um, here we are on the shore. They'll be going back into the city. <laughs> you know, they'll get on the, the train and the Jersey Transit, go into Penn Station, and there they are. They'll be listening to podcasts again in that way. And one of the things we want to talk about is, is hope. Um, the idea of finding hope and, and inspiration. And for a lot of folks, the Beatles do that. Uh, did you, uh, is that something you could expound on the idea that, that there's hopefulness in that sound? And I'm sure you're very familiar knowing the guy that one of Paul McCartney's most important remarks is that the Beatles never told you to sod off your parents. It was peace and love. The music's always very positive, isn't it? You know, which is good, and just great, you know, great melodies, great lyrics. I mean, they were just, you know, fresh sound, a little more raw than most at that time up till then. Um, but their stuff's always been positive. I mean, I try to do the same thing with my music. When we return, Dave Mason will share with us the kinds of approaches he takes to songwriting in troubled times. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're back with Dave Mason on Everything Fab Four. Can you tell me about your own songwriting, how you approach those kinds of tunes and uh, et cetera? I think folks would really benefit from hearing about that. Well, I, <laughs> um, be honest with you. I mean, I don't really know that I don't have any formula for this. It just, I just either, you know, I could happen anyway. I could go, be goofing around in the studio. I could hear say somebody say something. Um, I mean, I just they just sort of pop out. I wish I knew how I did it. Otherwise, I'd, I'd have written a, a dozen feeling all rights. <laughs> <laughs> how did that one happen to occur? It's, it's just a... It's a musical part of it's a musical exercise, and some is trying trying to write something as the simplest thing I possibly could, and the other and the rest of it's just it's an unrequited love song. Is all it is. There does seem to be a lot of unrequited love out there, right? Um, sure, there is. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you know when one looks at the career of Dave Mason, you see a lot of. Uh, very fortuitous moments when one might want to be a fly on the wall, like listening to an acetate of Sergeant Pepper. What, what, how did that experience come about and what was it like? Uh, um, basically I just went down to visit, was going down to visit George at his house in Escher. Um, one afternoon and we were there, I think it was just, I can't remember. Basically I seem to recall it was just basically the two of us. Um, smoked some hash and was like, hey, you want to hear the new album? Sure, absolutely. <laughs> so, you know, and that's where I first heard Sergeant Pepper, sitting with him in his, 
this room. It's very Indian decor, of course. A lot of big cushions and stuff, and just big, big old sound system. And on goes Sergeant Pepper, and you know, that was that was a game changer for everybody musically, conceptually. So you could hear this kind of transformative quality that was about to hit the world. Well, everybody did once it came out, you know. Um, although I think it was, I can't remember whether, was it not a little more influenced? I can't remember which came first, Pet Sounds or Sergeant Pepper. Um, Pet Sounds came first. Exactly, that's what I thought. So I think Pet Sounds was a big influence on on that approach for them. Well, and they had just, uh, of course, their last tour ended in August 1966, and that's when, uh, I believe it was Brian Wilson played a, a preview for Paul and George, I think, of uh, Good Vibrations, which... Yeah, great. Kind of, <laughs> yeah, a great record, right? But what do the Beatles come back with? Strawberry Fields Forever and Penny Lane. There you go. <laughs> what was George like? What was George Harrison like? Uh, all the times I ever spent with him, just a real nice, not very nice, easygoing guy. How about Mr. Lennon? I never had much dealings with John. I met John, I went over to Paul's house one afternoon, and John was sitting on the couch there, just sort of scowling. And uh, the only other time was coming at a party in Beverly Hills one night late. And I came to the party at about 11 o'clock or something at night with a group of people. And I was walking in and Lennon was coming back out. It's like, oh, shit, it's Mason. Come on, let's go back in. <laughs> That's the only other time I ever had any contact with him. Well, it sounds like that one was better than the scowl. Well, yeah, yeah. Was that during the, the early 70s? Oh, God, I don't remember. Is that part of that period of time when he was in L.A., I guess? Yeah, that would have been the Lost Weekend. The Lost Weekend, yeah. I was part of the Lost Weekend. It, it was interesting how um, so much of the business, at least for that interesting period there, was on the West Coast. Um, yeah, L.A. was, you know, big music scene. Uh, and that would have been the days when uh, George spent a lot of time out there, uh, Paul at times, and certainly, and those were the days when, uh, when their their longtime friend and supporter Mal Evans was on the scene. Do you did you ever meet Mal? Oh yeah, sure. Mal was always around, um, especially if you were at Abbey Road. What was it about him that was uh, integral to their story? You know, lots of fans are fascinated. I don't Big know. Man. I mean, obviously, somebody they've known knew from before they made it. I mean, that's you know, I don't really know the past history at all. I wonder if you could say a few words about Hendrix then, about uh, all along the Watchtower and um, how that came about. That's just a. Uh, um, Hendrix and I had sort of been hanging out together a little bit. Um, and, um, I, we were a friend of his apartment, uh, house, condo, whatever, um, one afternoon and they had a advanced copy of John Wesley Harding 
And uh, something obviously caught Jimmy's attention on Watchtower. And so I was, I think it was just a few days later, it was me, him, um, and Mitch Mitchell uh, were in the Olympic Studios and cut the track for uh, for Watchtower. Uh, and I was at a lot of the sessions uh, that he was doing on that album. And I sang on Crosstown Traffic um, also. And then there's some tracks that I did with him <coughs> playing bass and uh, sitar. But I have no clue what happened to them. I have no whether they've ever come out or, or they're sitting somewhere. Lost to the mists of time, I suppose. I guess. That, that acoustic you're playing, that's you, right, on All Along the Watchtower? Yeah. That provides, yeah. Uh, you know, obviously Jimmy is breaking off those beautiful lines, but uh, that a lot of the energy to me, and that song is just brimming with it, comes from your, your playing there. Well, cool. I mean, I, <laughs> I was there to contribute. Hopefully it was doing some good, you know. Well, it, it creates this, uh, you know, this energy beside the that beautiful raw electric sound that Jimmy had. Tell tell me a little, if you could, about uh, the album everybody's celebrating right now. All things must pass. Oh God, I've done a few on this. I mean, I really have no clue what tracks I was on. <laughs> I was on it, and I'm on about three or four things, but I have no idea what 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 which ones. Be honest with you. I mean, there was a lot of people that were invited to play on that. In uh, the times I was down there, there, there were good, there were a number of musicians in that studio. <laughs> so, um, and I've been asked this a number of times, and it just I can't remember which damn tracks I'm on. Probably listed. It's probably listed somewhere, but I haven't looked recently. I was speaking to Alan Parsons a couple of years ago about about this. Um, and, uh, he said that in his days there at the studio, George was really looking to bring in as many folks as he could to create a certain kind of vibe, you know, and that if you were good and you had an instrument, you could play there. Um, (laughs) and, uh, one of those formative experiences for him had to have come from, uh, the Delaney and Bonnie experience, uh, only a few months earlier, where of course uh, you were very much a part of that. Yeah, I was very much a part of that, and of course those players. I mean, I was there before I got to most of them, and then I sort of segued into the very start of Derek and the Dominoes, and we actually cut did one show, I think, somewhere in London at the um, Lyceum. Lyceum in. Um, I cut some tracks. Um, things were just getting, I eventually, I just, there was, I mean, it's no real secret because that time Eric started to get involved in heroin and which unfortunately Jim Gordon had got him started on. And, um, and <laughs> there was a lot of us sitting around, let's put it that way. And I eventually finished up just saying, you know what, guys, this is great, but I'm I'm going back to the U.S. So that's what happened with me in that. But you know, as it turned out, hey, they got um, got a great fucking album. Layla was just a great, great album. 
There's an interesting convergence, right, with those two records, which get their start during that same period and are such important classic rock experiences uh, and influence the 70s. I hear a lot of the 1970s coming from those records. Tell me about uh, what what had you in New Orleans in uh, February 1975. Oh, yeah. Well, I was doing a show down there at the warehouse. Yeah, I forget um, whether it was – I don't was Denny in the band at that time? I think so. Um, I had a couple of days off, and uh, they had said, well, come on down to the studio tomorrow. You know, we're, we're in there. So uh, I just went down there to just say, see everybody. <laughs> and finished up playing on um, playing with Paul on that uh, that guitar line and listen to what the man said. Basically, um, this is just what happened. It has a wonderful bright sound. What what uh, what guitar were you playing? Do you recall? I don't remember. Probably something that was sitting around. <laughs> I've seen the photos that you've shared on Twitter and other places. I see Paul has his his casino, and there's Denny on, I think, the bongos, right? Can you tell me a little bit about traffic and uh, what, you know, those uh, those experiences, too? Um, you know, we just met up with the – basically just basically started out with just the four guys just hanging out, just – more socially than anything um, and just listen to music. I had a lot of the same similar tastes, <laughs> a lot of different things. Jim and I had our own bands. and I think Chris was at art school. Winwood was still with Spencer Davis. Um, but that whole situation came out just really of four guys meeting up and just hanging out when they could. And um, then it got to the point where Steve was, and, um, I guess, just got <laughs> bored with being the kid in the Spencer Davis group and wanted to do something new and um, picked us three to do that something new with, um, which uh, I thank him for because otherwise that step into, <clears throat> you know, whatever I've done since wouldn't have happened probably quite so easily or quickly. Um, but you know, we just, we're just four guys trying to do something new. Me, I had never written. So I started writing. Um, and it was a great, it was, it was the differences and everything that made that band great, but it was the differences that drove it apart in the end. <clears throat> Unfortunately. Um, otherwise it had great, there's a lot of good contrast there. And like I said, I was just, I mean, what was I, 19 or so? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> I started writing and I just, you know, I, I, you know, early stuff was kind of rather naive and trite and I didn't particularly like it myself. It just happened, the first song I ever wrote was their biggest hit in England, <laughs> called Hole in My Shoe, but it was very much pulling from the time. So, you know, I had to work on my songwriting and, and that stuff, but it just, it's just, <clears throat> excuse me, too bad that it just didn't carry on a little longer. Um, it did with the three of them. But otherwise, we, you know, like I said, we were just, <laughs> just four guys with no response. But I mean, traffic, we, I mean, I sang on three Spencer Davis hits. I sang on Somebody Help Me, the harmony, and I 
sang on um, Give Me Some Lovin' and I'm a Man. This this speaks to another point I'm curious about your take on. So, I you know, I, I'm very fortunate to teach courses uh, in higher ed about rock and roll. And one of the things students inevitably notice, especially when they're looking at late 60s, early 70s, is the sheer amount of movement among players. You know, they'll look at Eric Clapton and they'll see him move from one group to another, to another, to another. Um, sometimes even before they've had a chance to take off in some cases, others right afterwards. Um, and, you know, I, we look at your experiences, which are um, also, uh, there's a lot of movement there too, in terms of collaboration. Uh, I wonder if you could say a little bit about that, um, you know, because historically when we look at it, we see all of this movement and, and, what leads to that, um, that kind of, uh, those quick switches that you can see in that period? Well, England's a small country. It'll fit in one corner of Texas. Okay. And everybody was in London. That's everything was centered there. So that's how it happened. It was very easy to find other people and run in, you know, there's a limited number of studios, very few. So, you know, that sort of chopping, changing, cross, you know, working with other people was, we were all using the same studios, same engineers, going to the same after-hours clubs. It was just, (laughs) it was very easy to run into everybody. So that's how it really happened. And it was the times, it was the 60s, it it was a renaissance of all kinds of stuff, fashion, exploration, art. <clears throat> so it was all very easy for it to happen in London. It was a very unique, you know, the 60s in London was a very unique opportunity. I like that metaphor of the Renaissance, you know, when you look at, you know, obviously Italian art, right, in a certain period or the plays of Shakespeare, that is happening in London in the 60s. yeah. Oh yeah, I'm always intrigued by John Lennon's uh, quotation about the war, about uh, his always hearing from his relatives about how important World War II was and how he just wanted to get over it and get past it to the next thing. Does that strike a chord with you at all? Um, well, I mean... <laughs> um, it strikes a chord, but into, I guess for me, and I mean, I very much acknowledge that, um, you know, I, freedom is, is, it's a responsibility. It's not a right. It's really a responsibility. I have a father that fought in the 1914-18 war, and then I have a half-brother that was driving tanks in North Africa. And yeah, if, <laughs> I'm very cognizant of it and I'm very um, aware of it. And yes, you want things to move forward. Um, but you want them to move forward. You know, there was, those are major events um, being perpetrated by a bunch of gangsters, basically. <laughs> Murdering millions of people. I mean, and so there was a philosophical um, um, 
and the concept of freedom and democracy and very much um, was being fought for and it's very important and it's not something that should ever be forgotten but moving on sure it's going to move on anyway you can't stop it that's not something you can stop anyway so i don't know whether that's the issue i think the issue is more to to not you know yeah i'm pissed off with about here and here and here but i'm not pissed off about here i want to be reminded because it can all happen so easily all over again and people need to be cognizant of it it's very fragile, as we've just found out. Why? It can happen just at the drop of a hat. Everything Fab Four is presented by Salon.com the premier news, politics, innovation, and arts website. For more information about the podcast, visit everythingfab4.com, where you can learn more about our podcast and my latest Beatles-related book, John Lennon 1980, The Last Days in the Life. The Everything Fab Four theme song, Seize the Day, is provided courtesy of Black Rabbit, the high-octane Beatles cover band and innovative psychedelic rock project from Rockaway Beach, Queens, in New York City. Like what you heard today on Everything Fab Four? Be sure to subscribe, give us a rating, and recommend the show to your friends. Plus, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at EF4Podcast. Distributed by Salon, Everything Fab Four is a wonderful production with editing and post-production assistance from music industry and communication students at Monmouth University. Remember, it's a Beatles world, and everyone has a story.